I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact, in association with The Telegraph and NatWest. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today, we're speaking with former Scotland fullback Gavin Hastings, Ireland's Andrew Trimble and Wales' James Hook. Plus, Nick Heath will take us through the first weekend of the Women's Six Nations and NFL hopeful Christian Scotland-Williamson talks about his transition from rugby to American football. But first, I'm joined here in the studio by the former... England and Lions fly half and Grand Slam winner himself, Rob Andrew. Rob, how are you? Hi, Brian. Yeah, good. Enjoyed that. Yeah, the first first weekend of the Six Nations and and whatever the overall quality of rugby in the Six Nations, I've always said this, it remains an interesting tournament because strange things happen. And as they say uh, in football, it's a hope that kills you and Scotland's Grand Slam dreams came crashing down round their ears in a way which... I'm sure they didn't expect. Did you expect anything like what we saw? No, I mean we were sat here last week talking to uh, the Scots, and they, and they, you know, they had to. Go, I mean, I felt they had to go to Cardiff to win. You know, if they had any um, hopes of taking themselves forward, building on the autumn. Um, you know, it, look with all due respect to the Welsh team, they have got some very serious players missing. There are some good players playing, a lot of scarlets guys who are playing well. We said that last week, but. You know, Scotland were terrible. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure all the ex-Scots have come out and said that'll be interesting to see what Gavin has to say. But that was a terrible start to the campaign for Scotland. Yeah. Um, well, as I say, we're going to speak to Gavin and James and Andrew. So let's have a chat about England. An uneven performance. Very bright start. Very bright finish from the finishes or whatever you like to call them, the bench and so on. In between... Uh, a bit uneven, but I made the point that in international rugby, your first fixture in a tournament, you're going away to Italy, which, although they're an inexperienced side, they they do have good players, Parisi being you know one of the outstanding ones, and to expect a side to have 80 minutes of flawless rugby, which is what everyone's trying to ask for, is probably unrealistic. Yeah, I think it is. I think it very rarely happens. You know, you may be in a in a major tournament through a tournament you might you might get to that performance you know and obviously everybody talks about the, the all blacks doing that on, on more of a regular basis but they probably do it even less now no i thought england were bright i thought i thought there was there's there some sharpness about their play 
a few penalties we talked about earlier that they've got to cut out, a few handling errors, uh, which they handed the sort of ball and the initiative back to Italy at various times during the game. And But they always looked like they had the gears to go yeah. through. And when they stepped, when they went through the gears, you know, they, they looked looked impressive. Now, a couple of things for me. The, the maddening and frustrating giving away of penalties. And I'm not talking... No one wants to give penalties away, but there are there are good penalties to it. Or there are understandable ones when you're under pressure and the opposition are looking like they might have a threat of scoring and so on. Or there are ones that are unlucky, like the Atoji ones when he gets isolated. Not really his fault, people have got to get it with him. But there were several which were just ones where they were ill-disciplined, really, and, and uh, people being accurate. So that's a continuing problem. They need that. And also the fact they got caught narrow twice. And let's give Italy credit. That long ball, especially off the left hand, takes some doing as a floater pass to make sure it's timed and the recipient is at full tilt on it. So they did it well twice. Um, so that aside, I thought Ben Teo showed how you can vary the game when you've got a centre like that. You know, the, the, the couple of run rounds that they scored the first two tries with were helped by the fact that they have to keep their eye on him. The defenders were fixed set because they don't drift off Teo, because if he does get the ball, they're going to go on. That gives the space out wide. So it shows sort of how uh, the game can be benefited, you know, indirectly by someone of that size. Yeah, I think that's obviously why Eddie chucked him straight back into the team. When when you've got the the Ford Farrell axis at, at 10, 12, you haven't got the real ball carrier at 12. I mean, Owen can carry it, but he's not, he's not in the sort of big ball carrier bracket. Um, and with... Billy missing from from eight as well. You probably lost a little bit of ball carrying there. Although to be fair, Sam Simmons carries in a different in a different way. I mean, he's got electric pace, but using Teo in that way, um, it just gives that ball carrier in the backs that you haven't got with with May or Watson, and then it allows the ball players to to, to run around and have a bit of space. You mentioned uh, Simmons wasn't a perfect uh, debut at eight, but then it was very difficult to. Expect that of a, a relatively inexperienced player, and yet he has got he's got pace himself, got quick feet as well, and is assured for the setup of the uh, Noel try. You know, nice deft hands. Yeah, well, he's sort of a cross between a a, a centre and a, and a and a sort of back a back row in the sense of a flanker, really, mm. rather than number eight. You know, there's maybe historically there's maybe times when there have been these small footballing number eights that have played in various teams around the world. Not traditional by any sense, but it gives a new dimension, I think. And you look at his stats as well. I mean, his work rate, his tackle count, his carries, um, they're pretty impressive for a, for a first international. And I think you've, you've got to give credit to uh, Chris Robshaw because he was told, basically, you're not a seven. Go away, I'm not going to consider you there. Went away and did what we know he can do well, which is be a great international forward and made the six his own slot, and yet he's asked in extremis, off you go, back there, um, and, you know, did as good as can be expected, I think, you know. And whether that will be a... I don't think it could be a longer-term thing because he's already ruled that out, but that that remains a bit of a problem to me. The, the balance, who will end up there, ideally, especially if you're looking forward on a one-off, but I, I just don't know is the answer. No, and maybe that will become, you know... Another issue that England have to carry forward into the, into the World Cup in 2019, if they don't have the out and out 
world-class seven, whatever that looks like these days, because I think yeah. that's the other problem. What does that player look like? It's a bit like the midfield. You know, is Owen our best 12? Well, yes, he is, in my opinion, until until you find a world-class 12 and then you, then you put Ford and Farrell competing at 10. Mm. But at the moment, they're better with them both in the side. It's the same with, same with Robshaw. I have enormous respect for, for Robshaw because he just... He just keeps Gets delivering. It, he? he just yeah. whether doesn't matter if 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 they asked him to play at tight end prop, he would just get <laughs> on with it. And he's a bit like, you know, the Richard Hill of of the of the World Cup winning side. Yeah. Just ask him to play in any position, and he he'll just deliver. We've got the Wales fixture coming up now. Wales had a a good opening. The, the despite all Scotland's um, uh, paucity of good play, Wales did play well, and they've got players. Missing, but it will be a different prospect when they come to Twickenham. England will be a lot sharper. They'll certainly be put it put them under a lot more pressure. Do you see many changes from the England starting lineup? Well, with Eddie, you don't know, do no. you? <laughs> you don't quite know what he's got up his sleeve. He's obviously got a bit of an issue at scrum half, and and, and no doubt that's one that we need to think well, about. Richard Wigglesworth has now been called up. Uh, certainly, he'll go, he'll go straight in on the bench. I think. Well, yeah, unless he might even chuck him in at the start. It looks to me like he likes a little bit more control at the start of the game with, with Ben Youngs and Ben's probably got a better kicking game than Danny and he likes Danny to come on towards the end when things are just breaking up a little bit. Um, uh, which he is highly effective, actually. He's brilliant at it. And actually, to be fair, the sort of Youngs care tag team, which is the way they've operated really since Eddie started, have have, have been fantastic. Very rarely has Danny started the game. The odd one he has, but so I think he's got. You know, I wouldn't put it past him if he started with with Wigglesworth in terms mm-hmm. of controlling the game. Uh, he's probably the best box kicker in England. If if that's yeah, and, and you know Eddie wants that as part of part of the game plan. Um, so I think it, you know it's a bit of a surprise that there hasn't been another scrum half in the squad. Uh, everybody's talked about that. So I'm not sure there'll be that many changes, really. Um, well, the thing about Wigglesworth is he's been around for so long and around the England team for so long. He's he's perfectly able to step back in. Um, you know, he knows the systems well, so it's a relatively seamless uh, yeah, transition. And he was there in the two, 2015 World Cup squad. Yep. He's a very experienced, very accomplished, um, very calm player, so he knows his way around a rugby field and... You know, I, I wouldn't have any issues if, if he was straight in and started, to yeah. be honest. What about Italy? Um, they have far, far too long had to rely on Sergio Parisi, but what do you do when you've got a player of such quality? And again, you know, he's offload, um, that, that set up one of the clear breaks. It, it just shows uh, how much quality there is there. But I thought, actually, one or two of the backs um, looked quite talented players. It's just a struggle when you're playing against a team. Well, let's face it, England are number two in the world. Let's be honest, Italy were always going to lose on Saturday. They were they were never going to beat an England side that, although we had some injury concerns going in, in the end, that was a very strong England side that was picked. There weren't that many missing, really, from a, from a very strong side. So Italy were never going to beat England. Um, I, you know, look, Connor's experienced. He's got a, he's got a stick. With a group of players, he's got to stick with the way that he wants them to play to get the best out of them. There were patches both up front, ball carrying, and with the backs where they, you know, they did look, they did look useful. So he's just got to stick with them and be- give the players belief, and and back them to deliver. And if he gives them the right 
game plan and, and give them the belief to go out and play. So we've got Andrew Trimble coming up next. So we won't discuss the Ireland part of the game. Let's discuss what some of the talking points out of the Ireland-France game, and in particular, the two incidents which quite clearly did not involve head injuries, um, involved knee injuries. One was a knee-to-knee, and the other one was... And this is actually... You know, the, the thing about Stade de France, the pitch used to be awful in sense it, it, it used to cut up in, you know, in a terrible way. And now they've got a new sort of um, surface there. But when you see players um, seemingly get injured by just planting the foot and it getting caught, you know, and, and then joints giving way, that suggests that there's something not quite right, um, you know, with the substitute uh, surface, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's blimey, it's, this game's tough enough as it is without yeah. the players having to cope with a pitch that yeah. in the modern day should be absolutely perfect. Yes. There's no excuse whatsoever. And, you know, to get injured on a surface that, that doesn't allow you, you, your feet or your studs to move and you get stuck so your knee gets twisted, yeah. blimey, that's just, that, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Well, I mean, I, I felt sorry for Nigel Owens, the referee, because he was saying... Uh, under questioning from uh, several Ireland players, Johnny Sexton in particular, you know, what is going on? He said, well, look, the independent doctor um, has said that this is a head injury. And I remember saying, the only way this is a head injury is if his brain is in his knee. Because uh, never at any point did it look as though the head was involved in either incident. And this is a third suspicious injury um event we've had with France because we had the one with Slimani coming on in the you know 20 minutes injury time. Now I'm told there is a suspicious incidents committee. Um, I don't Unt- know it, untoward incident. Untoward incident. <laughs> I don't know if it's headed by Monsieur Poirot which I thought is a great name isn't it? Jefferson Poirot. And uh, I just wondered, look the, the thing is these protocols are there for the uh, protection of players. What you don't want is teams messing around with them so they fall into disrepute and then someone who should be protected is not taken as seriously as he might. I, I just, I can't for the life of me understand how, it, you know, there's meant to be, there is an independent match day doctor. OK, so who is he and what is it that he saw either live or he should have a screen that he can look at yeah. to, to judge the incident to see if if there was head contact now I only watched it live I was watching the game on the TV but it didn't look to me like there, there was any head contact there wasn't with that either. player when he went down at the, the last one when the scrum half yeah. came off and Machineau came back yeah. on so how it's just impossible in this day and age for that to be allowed to happen well a lot of people keep quoting the Hippocratic Oath at me and I know what it says but it doesn't actually apply because, the, in, in essence, Hippocratic Oath of do no harm is a medical thing, meaning, you know, you haven't to do anything consciously that you believe will, will be untoward towards your patient. Now, the rules of a sport are not either here or there when you're talking about physical well-being, actually. So it doesn't really cover this. So people talking down that route, I'm afraid, I think you're barking, you know, down the, you know, you're on the wrong path. It's not going to be protected by that. This is a, a question of, of the spirit of rugby. And I think when, and hopefully, well, they must do it, surely. The Six Nations uh, Committee look at this 
they've got to keep that in mind. It's not a it's not a question of of of, of breaking the Hippocratic oath. It's a question of the spirit of the game, and that's what we need to uh, bring to the fore. Okay, we've discussed our points of view on the France Island game. I'm pleased to say we can now speak to the Island and Ulster winger Andrew Trimble. Hi, fellas. How you doing? Uh, hello, Andrew. Very, actually, very quickly. Your thoughts on the HIA as well, the, the 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 two incidents. Yeah, I well at the time I I missed it. I was doing um, uh, pastime comments for Radio Ulster, so I was listening to to uh, Jim Neely and Tony Ward, and uh, you could see there was a lot of conversations going on with Johnny Sexton and Nigel, and um, I, I think it was sort of missed. So I. I and I knew there was something going on there, but I missed it at the time when I was reading, obviously, Budrisco's <laughs> um, comments afterwards. Yeah. And um, and it's it's true, kind of what what Brian said. It seems to have well, it threatened to have been forgotten about because of the incredible end to the game and yeah. the drama. And then it could easily have got swept under the carpet. But it is it is reasonably serious. And I suppose Brunel's come out there today and said it was the independent uh, doctor who made that call. Is that right? Yes. So, I, I I can't I can't just can't quite see. Let, anyway, let's, yeah. let's 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 move on to what yeah. was. Um, I I was there. If you weren't there, it is difficult to appreciate. The conditions were poor. They were yeah. really poor. It it was raining continually throughout the game. It was very cold, um, and the game was sort of saved as a spectacle by one bit of brilliance from uh, the French and Thomas, and then uh, an extraordinarily mature and experienced drop yeah. goal from the man who who does these things um what do you what do you think about the overall island performance was it a bit of france being better than we thought or island I not think, quite yeah, living up or what i, th- I think the thing that's kind of um uh been you the, the the picture of, of ireland ireland's performance over the last 12 years has been just a clinical display of of ruthless this correct decisions, making the right decision over and over again, not dropping the ball, not giving away silly penalties, making the pass when it's on, carrying it hard, just test match arm for rugby and just doing the right thing over and over. And I think we did the right thing slightly less than normal. I think France did the right thing slightly more than normal for them. And that made it, you know, just a little bit more of an arm rest. I thought defensively France were very good and I thought, as you say, you know the the conditions weren't probably good enough for us to stretch them as much as we would have liked to have. But I still thought we would have had enough to to have made made that you know a, a good win, and it ended up being an incredible game. And uh, you know it wasn't it just wasn't the way I pictured it. I just thought we were gonna keep the foot on the throat for 60 minutes, and then they would go out the gate like South Africa yeah. did. In November, but it's just I just didn't see France hanging in there as long as they did, and a fair play to them. Obviously, Brunel's got uh, you know made made a bit of an impact there. Hi, hi, Andrew. It's Rob here. Um, hi, Rob. How I are just you doing? Uh, yeah, good. Uh, look, I think this time last week, I, I always felt that 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 France away game first up was always a bit of a tricky one because everybody in the first game in the Six Nations is is under pressure because you have to win your first game. If you lose your first game. You're set back and look what happened, I think, with Ireland last year when they lost the first game. Um, and I, So I thought that was always a tricky one. And, and in the end, it, it sort of doesn't matter as long as you win that first game. Mm-hmm. Um, and when mm-hmm. you put under a little bit of pressure and the conditions and France playing defensively pretty well, they put in an enormous yeah. number of tackles. And with Ireland off 
by probably 5%. It, it, you can get into that situation, which they got into going into the last 20 minutes, mm-hmm. where where France was still in it. And then you're in you're in a bit of a dogfight, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. You need, you need to be starting to, I think, you know, obviously Johnny missed that penalty and then round that... In around that time, um, uh, we we tried to run the ball back out of our half with with no one else behind us. We got turned over, um, uh, and they got three points. And that that was a little bit of a turning point in the game, I thought, um, maybe just before half time. And that just maybe dragged us down and didn't let us kind of continue the dominance because we were going three nil, six nil, six three, nine three, and then we were getting to twelve three, and then it was just tricky at that stage. You know, it just became an arm wrestle and became a proper test match rather than kind of what we'd seen from Ireland in the past, breaking a team down. But I was I was really surprised. I just didn't see Brunel implementing as much change. I didn't see him affecting you know the culture in the team as much as there was with a nineteen year old at at about half. I just couldn't see what happened happening and uh, and I think Ireland as a result of of being tested in that first game will probably be in a better condition um, going on to the, to the rest of the Six Nations because we, we might get the Twickenham with it all to play for yeah. and if we do we'll look back and say we've been in this position before and we've got we've got over the line so I think potentially Ireland are better off um, from, from the game at the weekend than had they dominated it yeah, Andrew, I was speaking to Luke Fitzgerald and Alan Quinlan about about the performance, and they were sort of wondering whether the centre partnership, Bundiaki and uh, Robbie Henshaw, was perhaps a little too similar in what they bring to the game. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, um, uh, the other option is Chris Farrell. Um, it's fair to both of those boys. I think you, you could easily easily be forgiven for for thinking they're two physical, you know, kind of ball carrying centers, but they both can distribute as well. Um, Chris Farrell is the other option there, um, and he can play a bit, even though he's, he's probably bigger than both of them. Um, uh, obviously, you know, Gary Ringrose is injured at the minute. Jared Payne's injured. With those two, you get something slightly different. Um, but I think of the the three centers they have. It's amazing now the strength that they do have. Um, those two fellas obviously have an established partnership. So I can see why he went for that. Chris Farrell, I think, could have slotted in there and done a great job as well. Um, but I think the way it ended up, you know, with reasonably wet conditions, I think I think they're probably happy enough for that centre partnership. Yeah, I, I think that goes back to the, the pressure, doesn't it, as you said earlier. Just when, when it gets to 20 minutes to go and you haven't put somebody away... And yeah. if the conditions were like they were, you know, that just makes it a little bit more difficult as well. But, um, you know, and maybe that puts more pressure on Johnny as well to, to, to make all the decisions, which is another mm-hmm. thing which, when you come back to what he actually did at the end, makes it even more remarkable how he actually mm-hmm. pulled that out of the fire, to be honest. Well, knowing Johnny as I do, I think he's more than happy to, to take the pressure on and make all the decisions and um, and... and Kind of run the run the whole thing, run the whole attack, and make you know. I think someone someone like Johnny, but that's I'm not saying that's easy to him, but that comes that's very much in his nature to to run that and and be responsible and step up and take responsibility whenever you know 42 phases the boys were knackered. He says we're not going to get any closer here. Time to take my chance and, and and got a shot away. So that was a mature decision to do that as well. A lot of hands I think would have bottled that and just. Thought let's get closer um, to try and 
I know they would have tired out a leg. Probably would have been worse, <laughs> um, uh, worse ball in the end. And I think he's a mature tenor. He he can cope with that. I think. Well, if you had to have a fixture that that was purpose built for ironing out a few problems and giving you a little bit of uh, a comfort zone, it would probably be Italy at home, which is what uh, Ireland have, have have got next. How do you see that? Uh, I I I can't see any any surprises there. I think, as you say, we'll, we'll we'll have learned a lot from the game in Paris. We'll kick on, and hopefully that'll get us, you know, back to being dominant again. Having said that, you just you just never know with Italy. You never know what. Um, even you know, there's a few moments of of very very good rugby from them at the weekend against England, and then all, they, they get steamrolled in the end. But um, yeah, I think we'll we'll probably see something very similar to what um, England produced uh, the weekend there. Well, Andrew, um, we're all looking forward to it, but thanks very much for coming on the uh, podcast. Thanks, fellas. Time now to speak from a Wales perspective and to speak to the Grand Slam winner in 2008 with Wales, James Hook. Hello, James. Hiya, Brian. How are you doing? Hiya, Rob. Okay, mate. Hi, James. Um, now, I was, I was told by various um, Welsh sources that before the game, and I don't know whether this was confected um, for... for, for for effect or not, but the Warren Gatlin was quite um, unhappy that he felt that Scotland had not really given them the sort of credit they deserved of being talking their own game up and almost ignoring Wales, and that that was a, a big motivation for the way in which Wales went out and played. Did you have any sense of that before the game? Um, yeah, well, you know, he came out in his press conference and said, you know, we thought he was going to we going to batter Scotland, um, and obviously, which, which we did, but. I think all the talk was was about Scotland because of the way they performed in the autumn. You know, Wales. You know, they performed okay, but I think Scotland was the standout team, and you know, there was a lot of hope and promise, and um, they just didn't seem to deliver that. And you know, I, I went to watch the game like, with my boy, and um, you know, the the stadium after was was bouncing. I don't think anyone expected that result. Yeah, I, I, I look. We we can go into the and we will go with the Gavin and in the way that Scotland played, but but Wales. Let's not take anything away from. Uh, the Welsh performance because there were uh, there were players missing and although they've got the sort of scarlet uh, format to fall back on, I tell you why. You know, Rhys Patchell seems to me to be a player who doesn't necessarily get the, the the credit he deserves for the manner in which he plays the game. No, no, he was fantastic, you know, along with a number of players. And um, like you say, we've had a lot of injuries, but I think you know, these injuries now have been sort of blessing in disguise, really, because you mentioned Patchell. He would probably be first choice a few weeks back, but obviously Bigger and Priestland have have gotten injured and um, given him his chance, and he's taken it with both hands. And you know, you mentioned the Scarlets. You know, their attacking philosophy was just transferred from club club rugby to international rugby on the weekend. James, I, I thought the um, I mean, obviously Scotland, um, in a sense, they were poor, but I think what yeah. Wales made them look poor as well and, and, and rugby's one of these games that if you don't get it right mentally going into the game which which I'm not sure Scotland did um, it's a really difficult place and, and, and Wales have got good players I was slightly surprised that the, the way that Wales played in, in terms of the, the, the quality of their, their footballing um, and the quality of their what effectively are almost backup players in virtually every position or a lot of positions yeah, exactly. And like I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of talk about Scotland's attack and, you know, your, your Finn Russells and, and Hogs and Hugh Jones, these attacking players. And, you know, people were saying, you know, make sure we don't kick to them, loose ball. But 
Wales, you know, they weren't afraid to kick to them, but they backed the defence, you know, they had great, great line speed. And, uh, you know, Hogg and, and these sort of boys were, were running up sort of blind alleys and trying miracle, you know, little chip and chases. And it just didn't come off for them. But, you know, in fairness to Wales and, and Sean Edwards, they backed the defence and, and, you know, Scotland didn't really have any sort of answer at all. I tell you what we saw from Wales that it's not that we haven't seen this in the past. It's just that I don't think we've seen it as much as we would expect from a quality team is when Scotland got the defence slightly wrong, you know, players, you know, one or two yards out of the line or just on the wrong shoulder, Wales recognised this and they put it away. Yeah, they did. And, you know, that's a credit to the the boys who've stepped in. Like Rob just mentioned, the boys who probably, you know, unrecognisable a few weeks back have come on and stepped up and, um, you know, they just attacked the Scottish line and, you know, for a few years now, people have been saying, you know, they want to play this style of rugby, but probably the last few years, you know, we haven't had the personnel. It's easy to say that, but you've got to have the personnel to back that up. And I think the weekend, we certainly had that. And, you know, there's certainly some selection headaches when, uh, you know, some boys come back to fitness. Well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I was going to... What do you think he's going to do when these when these players <clears throat> become... It's a nice problem to have, obviously, but he's going to have to make the decisions. Yeah, he is. And, you know, I think... You know, the, the injured boys, you know, most of them, you know, I think you look at George Northby and Williams, these boys, I think, will come into contention next week. And, you know, personally, I, I, would, I would pick Liam Williams, you know, as well as probably Josh Adams played. Um, Liam Williams is, is a quality player and he's shown to, to the world last summer how good he is. So I'd probably play him and, and George North if he's fit as well. Um, you know, but but again, Steph, Steph Evans played well. So, you know, it's a great headache for, for Gatlin to have. But, um, you know, looking at 2019, you know, next year's World Cup, uh, it's, it's a great headache. I think um, what I was really impressed with as well was was the freedom they played and the and the sort of the offloads, the space that they found, which perhaps some Wales teams over the last few years have been criticised for not for not playing that way. Um, whereas they looked like sort of Welsh players of old, if you like, in terms of yeah. I hate the word flair, but. But mm-hmm. but the good decisions around when to pass, when to offload, when to when to carry hard, um, they obviously were allowed to do that against Scotland. How how do you think they'll approach coming to Twickenham? Well, yeah, I agree with you. I think you know we've been used to probably the last few years is back and out kick chasing just in the twenty two whether the space is there and the edge or not, just kicking it and and chasing. But you know, like you mentioned, Patchell, you know, we've seen the space from his own twenty two and decided to run. Um, I think we've got to play that same way next week against England, you know, they're obviously a quality team, but, you know, they showed last week against Italy, you know, they can leak tries and, and Wales have got, you know, the attacking ability to, to create those tries. Well, that's interesting because I, I thought that there might be possibly a little bit more of a structured edge to to the game going, going away to Twickenham because it'll be very different in terms of the intensity, certainly of the defence that they're going to face. But you're quite happy for them to to, to go along the vein that they're at the moment. Yeah, well, I think so. I think, you know, if, if you've got players like, you know, again, you mentioned Patchell, who's an attacking fly half. Um, you know, if Bigger was playing, who's, uh, you know, a world-class player in his own right and more of a probably a controlling player, then, you know, you obviously you're going to have a bit of structure next week. You know, that's international rugby for you. But I think what we've seen last week was boys just picking their heads up and, and seeing if the space was there. They're not afraid to attack it. You know, it's not it's not silly rugby. It's just uh, heads up, uh, you know, sensible rugby. Yeah, I think one of the big things next week will be... Um... How much pressure England exert on Wales? It, it, it almost in every aspect of the game. I mean, that's where England will want to just put Wales slightly on the back foot, whether it's at the set piece or in the defensive line. That the defensive power that England bring 
as well as their own ball carrying. And I think that'll be the fascinating thing to see um, how how good this Welsh team performance was last week against Scotland. It's hard to judge when we're not quite sure just how poor Scotland were or how good Wales were. When when uh, there will be a lot more pressure put on the Welsh players, I suspect from a, from a, a fairly physical England side. No, I, I agree, Rob. And you know, they would have obviously watched last week and um, looked looked at you know any weaknesses. And uh, yeah, you know, obviously Scotland were pretty poor. You know, they've admitted that themselves. So you know, it's going to be a massive test for a lot of young players going going to Twickenham. And you know, Wales have had a lot of success there the last ten years. So you know, they're not going to be daunted by going to Twickenham. But you know, I suppose we'll, we'll tell whether they, they flourish or or not next week. James, uh, I think everyone's really looking forward. Certainly, this side of the bridge, I'm sure. You are from the other side, and uh, we'll we'll see. Will you will you be up and around, or what? What are you what are you what are you be doing next weekend? Uh, no, I'll be just coming back from Ireland. Osprey's got a game in uh, Connacht on Friday night, so we'll be travelling back back about lunchtime. So we'll catch the game in the house when uh, when we get back. Okay, fair enough. Thank you very much, James. Cheers, boys. The opening salvos at Twickenham first fifteen minutes. They won't necessarily decide the game, but I think they'll set the. The, the pattern for the game. I, I Do you think Wales can possibly play with the same, as James suggested, the same sort of freedom? I I think they might like, they might want to. Mm. Uh, I think they might come with the intention of doing that. Um, I'm not sure there's probably any other way for them to play. I think they're down this road anyway. I think Warren has decided that, you know, they've got to move away from the dreaded Warren ball or whatever that is. Um and I think they've got the players to do that, and we saw mm. that on on the weekend, and we saw it a little bit in the autumn. Uh, I just feel that at Twickenham, at England that have fired up Twickenham, with Wales coming off the back of a big win, that will that will rev up the Twickenham crowd. It will yeah. rev up the England players in any event. England have got a bit of rust out of their system, as have Wales. Um, you know, it's, it's the makings of a of a really good game, to be honest. But I just think there's a there's a bit more physicality and edge across the England side and, and probably experience now as well. Well, we have to do it, but let's uh, talk about Scotland in detail. Uh, our old mate, the former British and Irish Lions captain and Grand Slam winner in 1990 with Scotland, Gavin Hastings. Hello, Gavin. Brian, a very good <laughs> evening to you. You're sounding remarkably chipper. Have you been drinking? What's <laughs> going well, I, no, I haven't been drinking, to be honest, Brian, and I just thought, well, w- what can I do? I'm facing you and Rob Andrew. I've got to try and be as positive as I can before you stick the knife in. I, I'm not going to stick the knife in. I'll, I'll let Kenny Logan do that. He, no, uh, just he, he, let's, let's, let's hit it square on. He was very hard-hitting, actually, for you know former Scotland international in his telegraph column saying he just didn't feel they got to grips with the game. He um, questioned whether Finn Russell was in the right sort of attitude. And look, I don't set much store about what people do in national anthems. They can sing them or not for me. They can do whatever they want in them. What I just thought was the intent to, to play wide before you went forward, which is a very basic rugby uh, maxim, was never going to really work. Well, Brian, yeah, I mean, it, look, <laughs> it was quite exciting for the first five or six minutes. And then as soon as that interception happened and, and Gareth Davis sped away from uh, 
from everybody. Um, you know, it was almost as though Scotland's heads went down and they mm. thought, holy moly, that wasn't in the script. We were meant to score from there. And, um, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, I mean, I've watched Glasgow an awful lot this year and, uh, you know, a lot of live games. And when Finn Russell is on the park and when Glasgow are, you know, they've got the bit between their teeth. They're a tremendously exciting side to watch. And, you know, Finn is a bit of a maverick there in, in, in standoff, and he plays a lot different to an awful lot of standoffs. And when things go well for him, he, he looks really, really good. But unfortunately, on days like, uh, like Saturday, um, there doesn't seem to be uh, the, the plan B. And, uh, you know, that's a worrying thing as far as Scotland were concerned. I think that Gregor obviously talked about an up-tempo game, and they did that for the first five or ten minutes, and then they just really became unstuck. And the Welsh defence was absolutely magnificent, um, and they really snuffed out Scotland. And uh, it was we knew from a long way off that, that this was not going to be Scotland's day, Brian. And uh, I only hope that Scotland's day comes uh, on Sunday and then uh, a couple of weeks after that. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin, do you think do you think there's a slight risk of of uh, overhyping Gregor and 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 sort of overhyping the way Scotland want to play under Gregor, um, and and it's a bit one dimensional in a sense. And if it if it does go wrong, they, there isn't anywhere else to go. Well, I mean, this is really. I mean, you know, it was a bit of deja vu from last year and, and being down at Twickenham. Uh, um, and you guys obviously were there, I was there, and you come down with a bit of optimism, but also the reality being that, my goodness me, if this goes all a wee bit pear-shaped, then, you know, we could be exposed. And, you know, halfway through the game on Saturday, it was exactly like that. So, yes, um, you know, Scotland have got to find a game plan as quickly as Sunday, because, my goodness, if they don't win on Sunday... It is going to be a long Six Nations campaign for them. And, uh, you know, already you'll, you'll be looking at the game in Rome on Super Saturday being the one that, that probably avoids the, the wooden spoon. So, you know, I'm not writing off Gregor yet. I texted him after the match and said, yes, it was a tough day at the office. And uh, he's got to stick to his guns and his beliefs and, and everything that he's worked very, very hard for. Um, but, you know, days like that are pretty humbling experiences for everyone involved. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to work very hard this week in order to, to rectify things. Well, I think I and many people have always said that you learn a lot more when you lose than when you, you win. And look, yeah. no one should write uh, Gregor Townsend off on, on the back of one result. He's, he's earned the right to, to have the time in the in, in the hot seat for, for for far, far much longer than than people are seemingly willing to give him. So let him get on with, with that. But what I just wonder is, when you're talking about selection, you know, Ali Price, not a great game particularly. Uh, and I understand why Greg Laidlaw perhaps didn't start because he's been out for a while. But the control uh, and the decision-making, when you add the fact that Finn Russell was having a bit of a hard time as well, if you're halfbacks and just not doing the right things at the right time, it's almost impossible. Well, Brian, there were 
they were playing such a flat game. I mean, I watched the highlights and, and I watched the um, the rugby special last night. And, uh, you know, you looked at the way that the, the Welsh backs were, were aligned in attack and they were so much deeper than, than the Scotland team. And as a result, um, you know, they, they just were able to create an awful lot more. And uh, whereas they came flying up with the Scottish three quarters when they were so flat and you know, we saw the interceptions there. There was a couple of interceptions. They were getting man and ball at times. And, and I think that Scotland really need to, to work out a way that if they're trying to play this fast game, as you said at the start, they've got to find a way to mix it up with a bit of go forward as well. And I've always felt that, you know, when some of our top players and the forwards are not available, then we maybe look a wee bit suspect against some of the gnarled old forwards that, that England have and, and Wales have. And, you know, Alan Wynne-Jones had a magnificent game on, on Saturday. And, uh, you know, he's a true warrior. And they've got a, you know, that Millennium Stadium, Principality Stadium. It's a wonderful place to go and watch rugby. But my goodness, it's uh, when the Welsh supporters get behind their team, they're a very difficult side to to beat and, and they had their dander up and they were working really hard and it was Wales's day on Saturday and Gatland felt that he had his tactics right and so it was proved and some people took exception to the way that he said that he thought they would win by 20 odd points but that's Gatland, he's a, he's a tremendous coach and, and as you say I think Gregor would have uh, grown up a bit on Saturday and realised that international rugby is, is perhaps a lot tougher than uh, well, if he hasn't realised it prior to then, he'll certainly know about it now, won't he? Yeah, I think that, that to me, Gavin, as well, it, the next game is massive. I mean, as you said, the yeah. bounce back against France has to be, the, the Scottish team have to play like they did against New Zealand um, in the autumn and really hit France hard. It looked to me like Scotland went into the game as if they, as if they were finishing the Australia game. And it yeah. was like, we're just going to carry on against Wales like we finished Australia. It's, this game's pretty easy. It's, it's, Wales have got lots of injuries. And, and I'm sure that subconsciously, um, or certainly consciously, Gregor would be trying to keep make, you know, make them beware of that danger. But they started the game as if it was the end of the Australia game and didn't sort of respect the start of a test match and just getting all, you know, look, it's about getting the little things right, isn't it, and making good decisions. That doesn't mean you don't pass the ball, but you know they, they, they were almost the architects of their own downfall as well at the start of the game. That fed Wales, who were fired up because Gatland didn't feel they'd been given enough respect. In Cardiff, roof shut, and we've all been down there when it goes pear-shaped. And it's, it's blooming difficult. And once it goes from 14-0 down fairly early on, having probably had most of the ball and played most of the rugby, you're then climbing a very, very big mountain. No, yeah. oh, you're right. And um, I look, I think there was a lot of optimism. There was a huge amount. I mean, even the Welsh, and I was surprised at this, but the Welsh thought that the Scots were going to win pre-match on, uh, on Saturday. And this is just the, the punters talking, not necessarily former internationalists as well. But... but um, you know, seven weeks, they've got, a, they've got an awful lot to do and a lot of growing up and, as well. And, um, you know, the games don't come much easier for them. And uh, 
anytime soon. So, you know, the best time to uh, to get a performance under their belts is coming Sunday, and then we can look forward to the visit of the English in, uh, in a fortnight's time. But uh, it's going to be a tough old championship after that start. And I, I just hope that uh, the, the players realize that they've got to knuckle down and they've got to do the hard yards as much as the uh, fancy stuff behind as well. Well, Gav, look, it's at home and it's only France, so don't worry about it, mate. <laughs> Take care. See you soon. Thanks. Lovely to speak to you, boys. And uh, we look forward to seeing you up here in Edinburgh in a fortnight or three weeks. Absolutely. <laughs> Can't <Cheers>. wait. <laughs> Time now to turn our attention to the Women's Six Nations, which quite rightly has been run in tandem or parallel with the uh, men's equivalent. And we can speak to Nick Heath, the rugby commentator, who was commentating on Wales versus Scotland over the weekend. Let's let me give you the results for those of you who haven't managed to see them. Uh, Italy 7, England 42, France 24, Ireland 0, Wales 18, Scotland 17. Nick, uh, the Wales-Scotland game, I watched some of it, um, it was a good game. Yeah, it certainly was. Hi, Brian. Uh, yeah, 13-0 at half-time, Wales were looking the real deal. They, uh, they, were, they, were, they came out... You know, all guns blazing. Um, Jessica Cavanaugh Williams getting in with the, on the score sheet. Hannah Bluck as well. Karen Lake there. Um, but then, you know, Scotland turned it on second half. I spoke to Shade Monroe, and, and he was infuriated that the first forty minutes went as they did. He knew Wales would be physical, which they were. Um, Karis, uh, Karis, uh, Karis Phillips, sorry, the uh, Welsh skipper, really led from the front for Wales for that first forty minutes, and, and Scotland just couldn't live with the power. But they came out second half, and Scotland looked like a very, very different side. And Chloe Rolly went over for two tries. Um, I did amusingly see on Twitter afterwards people saying if Chloe Rolly and, uh, and, and Mr. Hogg at Scotland could decide to have a family, then they'll surely have the greatest 15th <laughs> in the world. Um, Jade Conkle as well, who's moved from number eight to the front row for Scotland. She uh, got a cheeky little one just placing the ball down just yards from the line. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a really tight one. It came down to the last couple of minutes. I mean, there were a few wayward kicks. Obviously, the way the women's game has developed over the last few years, when you're used to seeing the likes of Katie Daly, McLean and Emily Scarrett, you can really see people, you know, players who are at the forefront of the women's kicking game. There's still a little bit to be desired from some of the other nations. And a few went away would have, and might have made it less of a close contest uh, if Robin Wilkinson slotted a few of the conversions earlier for Wales. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a great game in Colwood Bay. And, and, you know, having done the number on Wales and with a last kick from Sarah Lord last year, uh, Scotland have ended up being on the receiving end of a very close one this time around. Um, in some ways, the uh, Irish and the... French women's teams have mirrored the strengths of their male counterparts, and therefore I was very surprised. The well, a the fact that uh, Ireland didn't register a score, but b that, that that France really controlled most of the game and and you know took the game away from them physically. Yeah, France are, are becoming a really really savvy side. They've got some fantastic players in there, the likes of Romain Manager, who uh, who was at number eight for this one. There was. This- Stunning score from Jard Lepesque, who got, got a couple on the score sheet, and Tremoulier as well. Um, you know, the French are absolutely incredible at supporting the women's game. I commentated in Brieve and La Rochelle on the tournament last year, and, and they put it up on the billboards, they hang the flags and the streetlights. So, you know, if you go into those towns, probably one in three, one in four people are going to the game that evening. They absolutely pack it out. The tricolore is out in number. Uh, and uh, and it really, you know, it can be quite an intimidating atmosphere. So England will have to go to France and weather that. But, but yeah, there's certainly, you know, some great, exciting talent out there. Ellie Kildoon is, 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 is looking to be the real deal. 
Walsh, who's been tearing up the, the Tyrrells Premier 15s. Um, and then, you know, Poppy Cleal, she's been right up at the top of the scoring charts. And, and great to see Sarah Hunter getting a hat-trick of tries. Um, there was almost sort of, you know, shades of the Italian-England performance from, from Rome in the men's game as well. And the fact that it took England a little while to actually find that burst away. And, and probably it's a good sign of Italian rugby that actually, they, you know, they, they weren't put away in that first 40. It was seven all at the break. Um, so that was kind of good to see. And they, they gave England a fair old game for that, for that 40, 50 minutes. But, but the strength and, and probably the, the conditioning and the fitness of England told. Um, they knew if they needed to alter the game plan a bit and, and stick it up Sarah Hunter's jumper, then she was more than happy to oblige and, and score, you know, her hundredth point for her country. Nick, um, we'll speak to you about the next round uh, fairly shortly. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All the best. Cheers. Interesting about the manner in which the French approach the women's game. They've hosted one World Cup and you can see from the television figures, actually, and the attendances that it's getting uh, certainly as much coverage and kudos as the England game, albeit that they've not been backed in the same way with with the hard cash yet by the uh, French Federation. No, but they've got a pretty strong structure, you yeah. know, in terms of the, the women's club game. And, and as Nick said there, the, the support for the women's team. And Grenoble is a fantastic stadium. And there'll be 20,000 people there. It'll be, it'll be rocking on a, I suspect, I think it's probably a Friday night. And it, that'll be a really, really tough environment for the England women. Well, for those of you who, like me, love American football and sat up into the early hours of the morning watching what was actually one of the best Super Bowls of recent years in New England Patriots going down 33-41 to the Philadelphia Eagles. We'll also be pleased that we can speak to Christian Stotter-Williamson, the former Worcester Warriors lock, who is now in Florida training to become an NFL player with the aim of being on the roster for the new season and becoming a tight end. Hello, Christian. Hello, how are you? I'm okay. Why, why tight end? Um, it's a good position. I think it it plays to my strength. So it's a it's a hybrid position. So there's a mixture of uh, offensive line duties, so blocking for the pass and blocking for the run, but also you are used as a, a receiver as well. So I think we saw um, last night with the Eagles and the Patriots game how useful and how important that position actually can be for an offense. So. With players like uh, Rob Gronkowski and uh, Zach Ertz both scoring touchdowns in the Super Bowl, um, you're able to see how big men can show their versatility and actually be used uh, quite effectively. Well, they they struggled early on to get Gronkowski into the game, didn't they? And in the second half, when he did come into the game, they were look conspicuously better. Um, I suppose a lot of us were just waiting for Brady to do what he does well. And ironically, the the really the first two pieces of real pressure that the uh, pass rush defense for the eagles managed came right at the end and was significant what did you what were you thinking as it went down to the 2 minute warning as soon as it went to the 2 minute warning and the patriots had possession you're still thinking that they could win because they've done it so many times they've proven even last year they came back from a 28-3 deficit so you'd never count them out. I think until the final whistle when I still thought they'd have a chance because even on that last throw, that jump ball where Gronkowski was in the end zone and had three players on him, there was still a chance that he'd come down with the ball. Um, so with with that style of play, with how situational football evolves and the two-minute warning, if you have one timeout left, 
you can turn two minutes into almost five minutes on the on the field. So yeah. there's plenty of time to actually make something happen. So until that final whistle went, it was uh, very much uh, seats on the, on the edge of your seats and um, just waiting for that final whistle. Well, I can tell that um, the intricacies of the game are permeating the way um, through to your psyche. And that's one of the problems, isn't it? If you're not habitually brought up from a very young age to understand the game, the playbooks uh, are so comprehensive. Uh, how are you finding mm. getting to grips with that particular aspect? Um, it, it's not easy, um, I'll be honest. Uh, it is actually very difficult. So our days at the moment are extremely long. So we start training at six in the morning and then if you factor in all the meetings, all the reviews and the studying that has to go into it, we finish up about 9.30, quarter to 10 every night. So there's a lot of work that goes in off the field. So we only train for, I'd say, four hours a day. And then the rest of the time is meetings and actually learning the game, learning the playbook, learning different coverages, schemes, protections and things like that. So that's probably been more taxing, I'd say, than the physical elements because I'm used to training in an elite environment. I'm used to those kind of demands on my body. It's just slightly different where it's more maximal efforts on the field. So when I'm with the receivers, for example, we ran uh, about three and a half kilometers the other day, and that was pretty much all sprints and all cuts. So that does take its toll on your body, but it's different to rugby where in a session you may run four to five kilometers, but it's 40 to 70% yeah. running speeds as opposed to maximum velocity. Um, when it comes to playbook, so obviously I'm starting from the basics. I'm starting from the fundamentals at the moment. And it's just trying to upskill yourself as quickly as possible to learn that playbook. So I'm quite fortunate. I pick things up relatively quickly. So in our house at the moment, there's um, six of us living together who are all on the program together. And there's a massive whiteboard on the wall. And every night we sit around the table and for about an hour, hour and a half, learn about uh, formations, schemes, concepts, coverages. And then we just repeat that throughout the week and then slowly hope that uh, things will start picking up and we'll actually start knowing what we're doing. So what is your route into the programme? Were you going to the draft? No, I won't. I'm not eligible for the draft. Um, mm. So because I've already been a professional athlete, I'm not draft eligible and I've done more than five years at university as well. So okay. uh, that's not the route that I'll be going. Um, so the way I'm on the international pathway program, so the way that that works is uh, we'll train for the next 12 weeks. Uh, there's six of us, and then there's four spaces uh, on a practice squad in a division that's selected at random. Um, and then you'll be put on the practice squad for the year, providing obviously you come out of these 12 weeks um, and do well. Uh, the end of the 12 weeks, we'll have a pro day as well. So it's a bit of a showcase for teams to come and see what we can do. Um, but the plan is to use this pathway to gain a, sp uh, gain a spot on the practice squad for uh, a full season so you can understand how the NFL works mm -hmm. and have that security of knowing that you won't get cut throughout the season so you can actually just learn. And then in that second year is when you try and compete for the active 53-man roster. So people like Alex Gray is now on about to start that second year of the program where he's going to be competing over the summer in pre-season and trying to win a contract. So uh, for people who don't know that much about American football but do know a bit about rugby, what are similarities and what are the biggest differences 
when it comes to training and playing of the two sports? Um, I think it's quite easy to think that it's just they're both games of big men running around hitting each other. Um, I think that's tending to trivialise it far too much because if you actually understand the nuances and the subtleties to the game, they're both completely different. So having played in the Premiership, I understand what that level required in terms of detail. But then I think that's the bit that I've not found surprising because I was expecting it, but it's just the level of detail in terms of how you move, how you think and what you need to know and being in the right place at the right time because it's about trying to be able to, for me, get to the stage where you don't have to think about things because as soon as you're thinking, the game is so fast, especially in the NFL, you're far too late. You won't make any impact on the game and you may even cost your team, uh, say, an interception or something like that. Uh, So with rugby and with the NFL, you're looking at the elite athletes in the world, both both, in both sports. So you look at guys like um, Anthony Watson. Anthony Watson could probably uh, be a good receiver out here, but it's just the precision that they move and the speed that they're able to execute at. So with American football, because you're allowed to recover between bouts, so you've got the, say, 40-second or 25-second play clock where you can jog back into position or walk to position, it means that every effort is that much more intense. Whereas with rugby, because it's a repeat collision sport, you're looking at it becoming more aerobic in nature. So your output over the 80 minutes will be slightly lower because you can't sustain that maximal output. Um, so say, for example, in a in one drive, as a tight end, you may probably be involved in, if it's a long drive, eight plays, and that's with changes. So that's completely different to, say, an 80-minute rugby game where you've only got half time or you may get subbed and then you're off for the whole yeah. game. Um so in terms of the physical aspect, uh, I, I was quite surprised, to be honest, because rugby players measure up um, to American rugby players physically um, in terms of how heavy they are um, and uh, how how powerful they are, I'd say, and what they can lift in the gym. But it's more the, um, the ability to express that force really quickly and have that sustained output at a high level because of the recovery they can get. So if you put, say, someone like Billy Vanderpola uh, in an offensive line or, say, a tackle, he'd do just a good a job. It's just about learning the game and learning how to move. Well, Christian, um, it's a long road, but let's, let's, I, think, I think I'm right. Kurt Warner is probably the, 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 the highest-achieving non-drafted player. So let's hope you can uh, get somewhere near him. <laughs> and please come back uh, throughout your... Uh, um, passage and let us know how it's going on. Thank you very much. Of course. Thanks a lot for having me on. England-Wales, a huge battle in prospect. Uh, very important, I think, for England to find ways to get on the front foot, find ways to allow Sam Simmons to do what he does you know, with it, with his, his speed and so on, the, the ball carrying and getting over the game line in a different way to Billy Vinopola and Nathan Hughes, and then for Ford and Farrell to do what they, they do best. And if they can do that, I think they'll be okay. Uh, but anything else, when you look at the way Wells have exploited relatively sh- small defensive lapses, they're going to have to be right on the metal. And again, that's a, a question of, uh, of, of A, state of mind, and B, instant decision-making. 
Yeah, and I think England will be quite pleased with with what they their first run out, you know, because England have not been together for a long time in terms of this group of players. Mm-hmm. Um, they finished last year's Six Nations poorly in Dublin. They were they were you know, I mean, Ireland played well, but England were pretty poor that day. Um, the autumn they mixed and matched. They only really put a, a side out against Australia, and they put Australia away. So I think what well, I think England will be really relishing this game. I think they'll they they you know look in good shape. Um, Wales are coming off the back of a big win. Wales have to get up again. That Wales would have expended a lot of mental energy and effort in that game. I think at the weekend, um, they're going to have to get up again. I think England can go up and a couple of gears. Um, I'm not sure that Wales can. Well, everyone's looking forward to it. I certainly am, and uh, I hope you are because next time you come back to full contact uh, in association with the Telegraph and Nat West, we'll be able to review the results of the second round of the Six Nations. So thank you very much to my co-host Rob Andrew and as always my producer Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because after all it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. Rob and I will be back next week, so goodbye for now. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.